0: So many of the legends, myths, and stories from the 1940s speak of all manner of high strangeness associated with the rise and establishment of the Nazi party. From the experimentation and alleged creation of superweapons known as the Wunderwaffe, to tales from Allied soldiers of spotting swastika-covered UFOs, and even the search for Atlantis itself. Driven by the obsession of discovering the proof of a race of powerful god-men from which the modern German people had inevitably once descended from, their search became an endless dark crusade, encompassing their own cherry-picked ideas from science fiction, magical textbooks, alchemical works, and other areas of occult knowledge in order to create a new world history to go along with a new world order. Headed by the infamous Heinrich Himmler, the true stories of Nazi archaeology and their quest for occult knowledge as part of world domination are so much stranger than fiction, and incredibly extend across the globe, even to the far reaches of the Bolivian rainforest, in search of evidence of their alleged Atlantean ancestors. Welcome back Into the Portal, everyone, for a very special archival release featuring the one and only archaeologist, adventurer, artist, and good friend of Into the Portal, Nicholas Cox. So join us as we delve into the utterly bizarre history of Nazi archaeology and their search for Atlantis itself.
1: Three, two, one, and hello and welcome to the Historians podcast. As always, I am your co-captain, Nicholas Cox, archaeologist, artist, author, adventurer, co-captain of the metaphorical vessel of exploration that is the SS Mysteria, and joined as always by the other captain, Andrew.
0: <laughs> Hello, good sir. I'm so happy to be back with you today, piloting our ship hopefully towards some other interesting place for everyone to uh, to enjoy, although I think we are going to be dealing with some things that might make some people's skin crawl a little bit, uh, which is also which is also fun.
1: Yes, I, I, I love making my dear listeners uncomfortable. I say, what's that on the horizon from the bridge of our metaphorical ship? I think... It's a very problematic topic that we'll have to be very delicate with Indeed. in our dealing with it today. But before we get into it, because it is going to be, it's going to be a pretty heavy load that we'll have to deal with. I thought we should just, you know, do some good old podcast warm up so we can kind of ease ourselves into it, get the vocal cords working. I like classic it. things you have to think about when you're a captain of a ship. Indeed. So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions, real rapid fire. There's no right or wrong answer to this, Andrew. This is just going to be really simple, real easy stuff. I love I'm it. am not going to be making, not making notes at all about what your responses are. But <laughs> uh, so question the first is what is or who are your favorite performing artist?
0: Favorite performing artist. First thing that pops straight to my head is the Tragically Hip. I don't know why. The
1: Tragically
0: Hip. I love the Tragically Hip and, and, and Gord Downey, rest in peace.
1: I see. I so uh, give me a brief, you know, ten second synopsis of what is the tragic. League.
0: Oh, you are not familiar. Okay, well, uh, I'm
1: afraid not.
0: <laughs> Can- uh, classic Canadian band, yes, uh, I- oh, iconic. Over
1: yeah, the Bare Naked Ladies, I am familiar.
0: <laughs> yeah, the Hitman, uh, classic, iconic Canadian band that I think is quintessential dad music. And although I am not a dad, I think that. Uh, Oh, it's 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 the most it's the most soothing uh just awesome stuff so i, I love the tragically Happened.
1: okay
0: I, mean, I i love uh, oh who else who who else let's do let's let's, let's let's roll with that question 2 i don't know let's let's keep this going
1: okay yeah so well, real quick cuz i know the fans are clamoring uh, my favorite performing artist is taylor swift and i don't mean that in an ironic <laughs> sense there is no hint of irony when i say that i am genuinely a huge fan of Taylor Swift. You could call me a Swifty, although that term does make my eyes roll. I'm a proud citizen of the Taylor Nation, and I did see her live for the Reputation concert in Manchester. It cost me £400, but it was worth every fucking <laughs> pence that went into it. I was in the snake pit. I was surrounded by, admittedly, teenagers, and the ones behind me didn't get to see anything because I was just standing up the whole time, but I had a great night. The question
0: that I have is, what did you have written on uh, the cardboard sign that you had uh, ha- holding up at the concert?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what, what, what did I have written on that sign? I, something to the effect of, I'll be your fearless wildest tree, hashtag red. In glitter. In glitter, yeah, yeah. Although the the, ta- the reputation concert was more snake-themed. Ah, I right? see. And I was probably dressed, right. like, probably dressed like some kind of serpent. Yeah. Um, <laughs> There was a lot of that going on i think i just wore a nice like dress shirt and jeans because there was the potential that she could ask me out on a date after the performance so i wanted to look well presented smart smart as it was she did not uh, <laughs> so okay into question the second and again like the first no wrong answers really we're just exploring ourselves uh, to get this show off to a good start so question the second is what are your two... This is your Head. First thing that comes to your head is, what are your two favorite Indiana Jones movies?
0: Oh, um, <clears throat> Raiders of the Lost Ark and Search for the Holy Grail and Skip skip the, uh, the uh, Temple of Doom in the middle. And there's only three. There's only three films.
1: Amazing. That was the perfect answer. I said there was no wrong answer because, in my <laughs> mind, there are really only two Indiana Jones films. And that is Raiders and Last Crusade. There we go. Temple of Doom... It, it it doesn't feel like Indiana Jones to me. I've got a lot of mixed feelings about that, and I don't count uh, Crystal Skull yes. as anything. It's not a piece of cinema. You could argue Temple is a piece of cinema, but it's not Indiana Jones. I agree. Now, Andrew, yes. there are some things that come up in both Raiders and Crusade that I think we're going to be dealing with a little bit today. Mm-hmm. And so... I have a theory. I mean, there's a, there's a few reasons why I feel those two films are the only two Indiana Jones films. I mean, they have strong female protagonists as well, uh, which Temple of Doom does not have. Mm-hmm. They're far less racist uh, than Temple of Doom or Crystal Skull, arguably. But I feel there is a common through line, which is really enjoyable, that is the bad guys are Nazi archaeologists. Yes involved in all this weird, crazy sci-fi stuff. And it's like, it's really good writing in a way to have your bad guys be the Nazis because you don't need to do any character development for them.
0: Yeah, it You totally. just need to say
1: off the bat that they're Nazis and we're like, okay,
0: cool. Yep. They're automatically the perfect villain. It's just, it's teed up. It, they tried to pass the buck a little bit to uh Belloc in in the in, in Raiders to be like, the French, you know, yeah, 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 we, we can pass some buck. Yeah. It's like, but no, it, it's so. It,
1: Maybe it's like a, a colonial <laughs> critique in general, <laughs> yeah. but no. The quintessential. Belloc, if he survived, would have been a Vichy Frenchman, like absolutely a collaborator. The real big bads in that film uh, is Nazism. Of course. And not just Nazism, but like Nazi archaeology. But not just Nazi archaeology, but also Nazi pseudo-archaeology, this Mm. pursuit of and fascination with the occult. And this wasn't something, and this is where we're getting to the actual meat of the episode, not something that Spielberg and Lucas made up for the sake of making two of the world's best films, Mm. but it came from a genuine place. Of historical fact and that is what I think is the craziest thing about this because I mean thanks to the Nazis being such so quintessential real-world bad guys and also their crazy scientific experiments their uh, Wunderwaffe and all these other weird weapons they were developing they kind of occupy a special place in science fiction and conspiracy theorizing through till this day but it's not that they weren't doing that stuff to begin with Um, you're right but I do feel in the last 80 or so years, since the rise of the Nazi Party, you know, sometimes they're given credence for certain things they had nothing to do with. And then other times, I don't think we pay enough attention just how really bizarre the real Nazis were. We oh, yeah. You don't need to write a fiction yeah. to actually... And so that's kind of what we're doing today. So uh, I pass it over to you, Andrew, if you want to give a brief synopsis of what we're going to try, the monolith we're going to try and deal with today.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely want to start by saying it's like you can't you can't even make this stuff up. Like the way you just teed it up there, it's like we watch Indiana Jones films and we see them as villains it, it portrayed in different things or in, in books or whatever. And it's like it, the, the true story is indeed like it is way more strange than like the stuff we actually like watch in films. So t- today what we're going to do is break down a little bit of the history of how the Nazi Party used the ideas of the occult for sure. Mm-hmm. We're going to build up to the early expeditions of Nazi archaeologists and the high strangeness that that was tied to, certainly. And through that, we're going to meander our way to South America and explore a little bit of the uh, the jungles of Bolivia, which uh, our, our host here, Nick, is intimately familiar with, which is really, really special, because there's some particular ruins that the Nazis latched onto. That mm-hmm. is the bread and butter of the Mistorians podcast, because obviously things hidden uh, at the bottom of lakes and rivers and oceans and deep in jungles is a- absolutely what we want to search for. Oh, so yeah. we, we are, uh, are following the trail of the Nazi search for Atlantis and their attempt to tie everything they were trying to do with building up the Aryan race and their messaging and propaganda and everything else into this this sort of epic journey, if you will. And exactly. so that's, that's what we are doing today
1: the way you present it right now is getting me pretty excited because as I hear you say that I'm like wow that is what we're going to try and do today and I just want to again reiterate what Andrew just said is that there is so much literature fictional literature surrounding Nazi super science from the great film Iron Sky to the great films like Indiana Jones and all the pulpy books of the 50s and the 60s and mm-hmm. and all of that is great fictional literature but we are actually dealing with historical facts so this is the stuff that is historically attested to through archival and anecdotal evidence this isn't we're not we're not even tiptoeing into the the possible or the well there's a rumor that this happened we are actually dealing crazy though it will all sound when we get into it with the actual historical Uh, exploits of Nazi archaeologists. Uh, A specific group of Nazi archaeologists, and I'm going to try and say the name for the first time on air right now, Mm -hmm. who are known as the uh, Ananerba. Nice. Nailed it, maybe. I think so. If a Nazi wants to correct me, they can go fuck themselves. That's right. (laughs) I think, uh, as as our conclusions will make clear, that even though Nazism in the way it was in the 30s and 40s uh, does not exist... Today, the ideals taught, reiterated, and built upon by Nazi archaeologists, which were used to justify the genocidal and uh, the genocidal campaigns of the Nazis, as well as their uh, grotesque expansion over Europe, the ideology that this archaeology enforced was not only implemented during the 30s and 40s, but remains today in certain conversations and discussions. Mm-hmm. And people might not even realise how insidious some of the modern discussions of archaeology are and how influenced they were by the mindsets of archaeologists uh, who were in the employment of the Nazis. So what we're kind of trying to do here is highlight the fact that the Nazis were defeated in 1945, but their poisonous ideology has remained. And I think our listeners might be surprised to hear in what facets and in what areas this disgusting mentality still rears its ugly head. So we're going to try and take you on a, a journey from the earliest... Uh, um, genesis of certain notions that were built into a certain ideology by the Nazis, which appears even today. And so, yes, this entire podcast is dedicated really to highlighting the history behind the mythology of Nazi archaeology and also hopefully making listeners aware of where these kind of ideals still crop up and how dangerous they can still be for modern science as well as notions of uh, indigeneity and local claims to their own history across the globe. So that's the caveat by which this whole thing will be approached. Well said. Very well said. Thank you for doing that. I think,
0: I think with that, we're, we're ready to, to dive into some of the craziness because I know there's craziness right off the bat that you wanted to talk about.
1: Yes, so I was trying to think, like, how do you, how do you approach this? And I read a lot of, I've, been, I've been reading a lot of peer-reviewed academic resources for this. It feels like I'm writing <laughs> an essay for university preparing for this particular episode. Because, right. again, it's a sensitive topic and you want to approach it in a way that does the source material justice. while well, at the same time, never once seeming like we endorse the ideology behind it. Mm-hmm. And I thought the best way to go about this would be, clumsy though it might feel, <clears throat> to try and start at the beginning... Of certain ideas that led to almost the socio-cultural milieu in which Nazi archaeology really took form. So, I mean, Andrew's got some amazing things he's going to tell us about the occult uh, and a particular castle in the Czech Republic where yeah. it, it's it's the perfect setting for this all to begin. But I think to lead us into to lead us into the Nazis doing all their awful Indiana Jonesy stuff. We should at least give some mention to the ideology that formed their ideology. So, an an, an analysis of uh, Nazi archaeology cannot exist without acknowledging the batshit crazy ideas of a German engineer called Hans Herbinger, Mm -hmm. or Herbiger, and this is called either glacial cosmology or the world ice theory. He had it in 1894. And so, Andrew, what do you know about global? cosmology i'm uh, glacial cosmology or global
0: ice theory well i first of all i love the term glacial cosmology more than than the world ice theory but mm. i from what i understand uh there's some people that even take it as far to link ideas of the world ice theory to the hollow earth theory and yes. cases of, of of people traveling through tunnels and then being encrusted with ice uh but uh from what I understand, at a rudimentary level, it is in, it is essentially the planets, the moons, whatever are 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 made up of ice. That is the structure of the inner.
1: The 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 absolute sort of yeah. The core of this theory is that all the celestial bodies are made out of ice. The Milky Way is not actually a galaxy, but it is an ice particle right, trail right. in yeah. the sky, and all planets are slowly orbiting towards the sun. The sun is fire. The planets are ice. So. Here's how this scientific, in quotation marks, theory has its genesis, that Hans Herbinger, an engineer, in 1894, had a dream where he was floating in space watching a pendulum made out of ice get longer and longer until it broke. Also, in his career as an engineer, he once saw ice hit molten metal. And in doing so, he coined the racist theory of the universe. It's kind of crazy how that was the genesis. Yeah. So he he decided that... All planets are ice, even the Earth, somehow, and that the Earth has had multiple moons made out of ice that have all gradually orbited closer and closer to Earth until ultimately impacting with Earth. And these impacts have caused the great cataclysms of the past that have wiped out megafauna and have also caused uh, events that are recorded in the foundational myths of civilizations across the planet right and he was inspired as as we'll have noticed of course that there are so many mythologies that involve a great deluge at some point in its early history from south america to central africa to the middle east europe giant floods appear in the mythology uh, of countless civilizations so he had this theory that the floods were caused by the gradual the moons coming close to earth causing water levels to rise. And at the same time as the water levels rise, the atmosphere was being stripped (coughs) by the gravity of these planets. It was all pseudoscientific, and the stripping of the atmosphere means radiation could creep in and cause mutations in the animals living on the planet, which is why, he argued, you always see megafauna right before an extinction, such as the dinosaurs, such as the mammoth. These big animals are created by regular animals being mutated. Also, and this is where the racism comes into it, he argued (laughs) that the human race had existed for millions of years, long before the last... Of our moons orbited into our atmosphere and caused a great cataclysm. The human race that existed as a single race, and this was the Aryan race, the Nordic race that the Nazis uh, fixed their ideology onto, who ruled the entire planet effectively as one enormous empire. But Mm -hmm. as the moons grew closer, the mutations within humans created other species of humans and this is what was latched onto by the nazis to justify their purges and their genocide against races that were not considered to be Aryan. so it all kind of had its genesis in this ridiculous scientific theory but this is how it all got started and the myth of atlantis was tied in even at this early stage right the idea that this Aryan nordic race referred to as the fool who originated in the Atlantic island nation of Atlantis had its great cities across the planet in Papua New Guinea, Mexico, Ethiopia, Tibet, Antarctica and in the Andes of Bolivia in a place known today as Tiwanaku. Mm -hmm. They ruled humanity and lived alongside all the giant creatures of our past but (laughs) the impact of the last moon wiped out the megafauna it caused the water levels to rise It, it destroyed the empire of the Aryans and in doing so gave these so-called lesser races, the non-Nordic Aryan races, the chance to rise up and establish themselves as the earliest civilizations we have in our current history, such as the Egyptians, Sumerians, Babylonians. These were the first races in the post-cataclysmic world. Right. And so this is, this is glacial cosmology in a nutshell. And a big part of it was the idea that Aryans were alive and well today in Tibet, where apparently that was an Aryan colony that were from the Atlanteans and the Tibetans were actually descended from Aryans and Buddhists themselves, the idea was that Buddhism was founded by Buddha who was not Tibetan, but an Aryan refugee from the great capitalism. So believed the Europeans. <laughs> and in doing so, they managed to steal the cultures and the mythologies of numerous other groups across the planet and yeah. say, no, but these are, these are white European ideologies now, actually. So this is this is glacial cosmology, which will come up time and again throughout the rest of our discussion. But that is one bonkers approach from 1895. Yeah, and ver- that's, what do you think of that?
0: <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's it's so it's so crazy how intimately connected like when you just went through all of that it's basically the story uh we're talking about the flood the antediluvian world prehistory mm-hmm. like noah like you know the, the fallen type stuff we actually mentioned this in the last episode exactly. in prester john and and how that is tied into then atlantis in later in all of this which is just so bizarre it's like to me they should they shouldn't be Linked and obviously in like actual Atlantic Atlantis research it's not. But here we go. I mean this is this is how we're kicking it off because they're they're guiding it where they want to guide it, right? So
1: you raise a very good point that Atlantis Atlantis is a Greek myth. I'll get to that in a moment, but Atlantis never alluded to this great cataclysm. The original Atlantis myth of Plato from three (laughs) hundred and fifty BC doesn't make any mention at all to megafauna or the mutation of the human race. That was all an invention mm-hmm. of the 1890s. But it was almost this thing where Hans Herberger had his dream about the planets being made out of ice and then gradually incorporated mythology from around the world, such as the, as you say, the antediluvian mythology right. of numerous cultures in with the mythology of Atlantis and kind of created this justification for white supremacy. That was how it really got started. And in the 1800s, late 1800s, there was this real fetishization of Eastern religions. The Eastern religions were just starting to be explored at this point, And it was sort of believed like the Western religions were already understood by Westerners. So there was no belief that mysticism or magic could exist within them. But there was a thought that maybe magic is possible in Eastern religions even yes. now. And so people from Europe began picking and choosing Maybe not realizing how harmful this behavior was, aspects of Eastern religion to work into their own. And so, another example, which starts off in a very innocent place, is the first ever science fiction book called *Vril: The Power of the Coming Race*, which was published in 1871 by a man called Edward Bulwer Lytton. Bulwer He's actually the author who coined the famous phrase, "It was a dark and stormy <laughs> night." He was That's the first awesome. person to write that, which is now like a, a classic. So he was just an author living in England, and he wrote a science fiction book at a time when science fiction was unheard of about a man that falls down a mineshaft, enters a hollow earth where he meets a race of angelic Caucasians uh, who are superhumans, the Germans would later call them Ubermensch, with amazing powers. This race is called the Vrilja, who get their power from some mysterious cosmic life source called the Vril. And they can breed with humans because although they are superior to surface humans, They were once humans who were forced underground by a great historical cataclysm and a deluge. And the book ends with a warning that the Vril are destined to return one day and retake the world. And though this was a fictional uh, adventure story and Edward Edward bulwer lytton never made any claims it was true, he was an occultist. And occultists and followers of the esoteric of the 1800s came to believe that Edward bulwer lytton though he wrote a fictional story, was speaking a spiritual (coughs) truth that he had been somehow contacted by the real-life Vrilja of the world beneath. And the Nazis had a very similar belief regarding Tibetan lamas, who they thought, as the descendants of Aryans, could contact the troglodytic race of Thule who still lived below the earth today. And so it all started to get combined. Nazis saw a connection between Bulwer leitins adventure story and the glacial cosmology of Hans Herbiger. And the occult belief that the Atlanteans had spread across the globe of Atlantis before the cataclysm set the stage for this, and setting the stage for this modern archaeological Mm -hmm. period that we see was also tied into this mystical story which was part of a larger school of thought that eastern religions had some connection to human history that western religions had overlooked
0: yeah man oh man the nazis would have loved ancient aliens they could have found a million things to latch onto in that in that show and them like oh yeah okay sweet let's do it. that we're, we're going to roll with that we're going to absolutely like, <laughs> we,
1: we're going to kind of end on this note but the weird thing about like modern Like popular archaeology, and I'm gonna rant about this real quick right now. But Mm -hmm. whenever I'm at a dinner party with people who aren't archaeologists and they find out I'm an archaeologist, I get asked one of two questions almost back to back. One of the questions is, Have I found any dinosaurs recently? And the truth is, No, (laughs) because archaeology isn't the excavation of dinosaurs, it is the excavation of human history. Mm. Though I personally love dinosaurs, I have so much dinosaur memorabilia around my house. So it doesn't help my case, but I don't like dinosaurs. or I, I don't dig dinosaurs. Uh, but the other question I get asked is, oh, so do you think aliens built the pyramids? <clears throat> and this is because ancient aliens has just like buried itself in the, in the modern psyche of people when they think of archaeology. And they shouldn't because ancient aliens is basically a new take on an old idea that indigenous people can't build their own artifacts. If it's yes. not made by white people, well, it has to be made by aliens. Right. And in the 1800s and the early 1900s, aliens weren't yet considered as the alternative to white people. It was, it was basically all impressive artifacts had to be built by a lost civilization of white people who became this mythical group known as the Aryans, which then takes us to 1915 and Arya Sophie which was the prophecy of Jörg Lanz von Liebenfels, who prophesied the resurgence of a lost Aryan civilization peopled by Nordic godmen. That's a that's a quote and a half. That isn't is it? a
0: quote and a half. I mean, did, are we are we already are we venturing straight towards some Atlantis stuff, or do you want to talk a little bit about? Sh- oh, we can I-
1: start to delve into Atlantis now. I do have a section where I talk about the Platonic description of Atlantis, but we can get into it already. You oh
0: want no, no, no! To- I I think maybe we should hold off, and I I wanted I definitely want to go through the classic the classic description because I think that's important yes. because that's the origin, obviously. Um, yeah. we, I could, I could definitely so that's going to the
1: last thing I want to talk about before Sounds we like, dive into the Nazis. Uh, what a phrase. So Arya <laughs> sophie, which I think we are all kind of familiar with now, which is just the belief in Aryans. Mm-hmm. Now, there's, by the way, no archaeological evidence of an Aryan race. Aryan has historically meant those of Indo-European heritage. And the only Aryan society, as you could call it, were an Indo-Aryan group whose language base spread across Eurasia between 4000 and 1000 BC. Nothing to do with Atlantis, nothing to do with these Nordic godmen. But Jörg Lunds from lebenfels claimed he gave a copy of his works in 1909 to a young Adolf Hitler. And I don't quite know how the timelines work here. This is more just an apocryphal story. Yeah, yeah. But lebenfels had published his work, and this gives you an idea of like how unscientific these theories started off as. He published his beliefs, because they were only beliefs, there was no evidence for them, in a magazine called Ostara. And it was kind of this, like, pulpy magazine where his beliefs were reinforced by illustrations of, like, Nordic supermen protecting scantily clad blonde women from the ravages of these sort of bestial ape men. It sounds like the Frank Frazetta cover of, like, a metal album. Yeah. It has, it's like, and that was, like, the scientific literature that was reinforcing these ideas was just pulpy magazines you could buy at a corner store where you'd buy, like, a comic book today. Well, I
0: want to come back, like even even. Sorry, just to, just to jump in there again, like uh, the Thule, like the characters in the in the, the earliest science fiction book, and what you're just referencing there before. It's like latching on to stuff like that, even though it was from from fiction. Yeah is is just so utterly bizarre that's so different that's something else than actually being like okay here's an artifact and we're going to interpret it however we want to interpret it right and i want to come back remind me at the end to come back to mention edgar casey uh the sleeping prophet who had a lot to talk about with regards to atlantis but he described something very similar to to what you were talking about just now in the science fiction book with the mm. idea of this these beans coming from not the inner Earth or whatever, but almost like a Scientology type of vibe, where they're like spirits oh, yeah. from spirits from space that are coming and inhabiting the bodies of 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 uh, 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 the Aryan beings, I guess that were the Atlanteans yeah. possibly, or what they're I trying actually to. I
1: <laughs> saw that reference in my writing, but I, I didn't see enough of it to, to write a, uh, an, a paragraph on it. But I did see that there was a thought that even the the inspiration of the Aryans, like the ancient Aryans was that they were sort of inhabited by celestial
0: yeah. spirits.
1: So it's like, it's ancient aliens from, exact. from the first gunshot yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I think it is very interesting and important to sort of stress, like the Nazis basically wanted to create a history to reinforce... The, the, to justify the existence of Aryans which would in turn reinforce their claims to land Lebensraum as well as justify what ultimately became the holocaust yeah. uh, and their plans of global domination and the extermination of people they wanted to justify that but there's no scientific rationale to justify that kind of behaviour so they picked and chose from sort of the science fiction stories of the 1800s and magazines written by men who had dreams of the early 1900s mm-hmm. and they created what became in the 30s scientific documents doctrine out of it. And it's, it's so bizarre when you look at the foundations of these things that they really didn't have a leg to stand on. And yet, millions of people died because of it. So it's kind of, it's amazing where it all gets started. There are two more pseudoscientific theories I want to deal with before we get into Atlantis, and then we can talk about the classical description of Atlantis. So a book I read... Uh, quite by chance, but it's called Beasts, Men and Gods. It was published in 1922 and is the memoir of a Polish adventurer known as Ferdinand Osandowski, who was involved in the Russian Civil War fighting for the white Russian army in Mongolia. And during his time in Mongolia, he spent a lot of time with the Mongolian Buddhists who all ultimately killed after the Bolshevik takeover of Mongolia at the end of the Russian Civil War. And he quoted a lot of now dead, by 1922 now dead, Uh, Mongolian Buddhist lamas who kind of introduced him to Mongolian Buddhism and he wrote about this king of all the world who lives again in a hollow earth kingdom known as Agati and he even says that Agati once existed upon the surface of earth in two great uh, island nations in the Pacific and the Atlantic and you kind of read this and you read about the amazing technology of the king of all the world and the and the people of Agati and you sort of think Othendalski's revelations, if true, would prove for many people the beliefs already circulating about the Buddhist connection to the Aryans and the existence of Atlantis because how else could the Mongolians have known about Atlantis being a landlocked uh, nomadic nation unless there was truth in the stories? But my research has shown to me that no Buddhist has ever said anything about a hollow earth and a kingdom known as Agati. That doesn't exist in actual Buddhist teaching. No. The closest Asian religious equivalent is Shambhala, which was the inspiration for Shangri-La, which the Western world learned about in 1934 through the novel Far Horizons. But Shangri-La is again a Western creation, but it is based off the Buddhist paradise of Shambhala. Agati doesn't exist in Eastern religions, only in Western Orientalist interpretations of, of occultism borrowing from Eastern religions. But because Beasts, Men and Gods was the first introduction for many Westerners to Eastern religions, they kind of took what Osandowski, a famous liar, among other things, there's a lot about his books that apparently we should really question, <laughs> Yeah. but they kind of took his, his work as written. So he introduced this idea, this, this kind of proved for a lot of people that there was a clear connection between Buddhism, Arianism and Atlantis despite the fact that no Buddhist has ever said any of the things he claimed they said. And the men he quoted were all dead, thanks to the Bolshevik uprising, so they couldn't really protest his libel. So he did a pretty good job at forming the foundations of the 1920s of what would become this Aryan belief in the 1930s. Yeah. And the final thing that we have to acknowledge, and it's going to come up a lot more, is polygenesis, which was the idea of the 1800s. And it was this idea that the human race was not one race, but it consisted of different races of different biological origins. And in actual fact, it was a Bolivian aristocrat polymath known as Belsario Diaz Romero, who was a member of the Geographic Society of La Paz. He was a historian, a botanist, an archaeologist, an anthropologist. He was not an indigenous Bolivian, which is relevant. He has a quote in which he says, there are three living and permanent races... And I hate the fact he said this, but I'm obliged to quote it as I'm quoting him. He said, "There is the white race, the yellow, and the black." And he was a con- contemporary of a lot of Nazi archaeologists who got really interested in Bolivia as a potential seat of Atlantean power. And we're going to talk about him a lot more. I just thought it'd be interesting to mention this Bolivian because it does tie into what we we'll talk about later. To kind of give you an idea of polygenesis was this theory that the human race is not one race, but multiple races. And he even invented scientific names for the three races. There is Homo Niger, which is the African race, coming from Africa. There is Homo Atlaicus, which is the Asian race, coming from Central Asia. And then there is Homo Atlanticus. So that is the white Aryan race. And Homo Atlanticus comes from Atlantis, which was now being... perceived by certain polygenesis as the origin place of white people. But that, and now we can get into the actual Atlantis myth, is not how Atlantis got started. So this is this weird pairing we're going to see time and again in this discussion, where Atlantis becomes the white Eden. It is the land of the white people, despite the fact that Atlantis in the original myth, which we're going to get into right now, was never any of these things. So. I've got a little bit about Plato here, but Andrew, do you want to take us off around Plato, 350 BC, The Legend of Atlantis?
0: I mean, okay, I mean, he, he published this work that most people, most historians, and con- definitely contemporary historians, think of as an allegory, right? It's meant, they, they think of uh, this nation of, or, well, that's the thing too, it, we, it's sort of, mm. it gets a little hairy if Atlantis was a, st- a state, a city-state, uh, an island nation or some sort of a continent with that right like that's what that's what it sort of plays into
1: it's tricky to say because oh sorry yeah, i was just gonna say uh, in greece city-states were effectively kingdoms and countries in their own right athens was democratic sparta was a kingdom so you'll hear a kingdom you think oh is this a huge space of land or is this just the wall around a city-state like it was in greece it's it's because of the terminology used in classical Greece, it's very unclear what Atlantis was. All we know, according to Plato in his Timaeus and Critias dialogues, I did probably said that name terribly.
0: No, I think you. I think you got it. I think you got it.
1: Okay, Timaeus and Critias. Okay, in his dialogues from 350 BC, it's an island civilization beyond the Pillar of Hercules, which is the mouth of the Mediterranean around Gibraltar today. Ruled by a remarkable dynasty of kings, and they tried to conquer Athens. The Athenians mounted a sterling defense, and the gods, upset with the Atlanteans' brazen act of violence, sent earthquakes and floods until the hostile kingdom was swallowed by the sea and vanished. And as you said, it's thought this is just an allegorical story about how absolute power corrupts absolutely.
0: Yeah. And this is all supposed to be happen, happening around, you know, 9600 BCE is what is what Plato's sort of referencing in his mm. in his particular story. And, you know, it's what I find really interesting is that it's not necessarily just the allegory written in the the oh, I'm going to butcher this too, the Critias and the Timaeus, oh, that's brutal, way worse than you. But uh, <laughs> that that the original story may have actually come from uh, Egyptian priests that had been documenting various different historical, you know, uh, events, well mm. before Plato got his hands on this stuff. So there was, uh, I mean, this again. Like we're not getting into just just Atlantis on this episode. We're talking about Nazi archaeology and the search for Atlantis. So Atlantis is its own mm. multi-part series in and of itself. But oh, yeah. there was one particular Egyptian priest, Solon, I, I mm. believe was the name that spoke to Sais was, I guess, one particular place in Egypt where he was hanging out. Sorry, I'm totally butchering this, but the whole point I'm trying to make here is that like there was way more historical precedent for an actual literal Atlantis mm. before Plato ended up writing his allegorical, air quoting here, uh, account yeah. of something. So there's something to latch on to.
1: Well, I think it's often the case that all mythology has a genesis in a in potentially a real story and a, even an allegorical story is trying to make sense of something that happened. I read a great theory that the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah from the um, from the Old Testament. There is a lot of evidence that about that same time a meteorite hit that particular region of uh, the Levant and it is, it is thought that God turning Sodom and Gomorrah to, to stone and jo- Lot's wife to salt or Job's wife, Lot or Job I'm not up to date on my Old Testament. It's Job, Job, I think. Yeah, Job. Job it's Job. It's Job. I've uh, never heard that name said out loud before. Uh, <laughs> you um, haven't watched uh, uh,
0: Arrested Development, I guess? No, that's one of the characters' no. names. It's oh, pretty awesome. Right,
1: it is. I've, again, I've read it. Um, but that so that's often thought by archaeologists to actually be an attempt at trying to explain a meteorite impact that wiped out these two settlements in the Levant. And and a theory I've heard is that the uh, destruction of Atlantis has been tied to the devastation of the island of Thera, also known as the island of Santorini, which is uh, one of the Greek islands, and it was home to the Minoan culture during the Bronze Age, but Mm -hmm. it was destroyed by a volcanic eruption. If you go to Santorini today, the whole island's a volcanic crater, but you can take a submarine tour into the water and see all the sunken ruins of a Minoan city that was destroyed by the volcanic eruption. And the Minoans were one of the hugely dominant races or uh, empires, civilizations in the Bronze Age that was destroyed during the Bronze Age collapse, which also wiped out the Mycenaeans, the Hittites, it devastated mm-hmm. the Egyptians and the Babylonians as well. Mm-hmm. And in the wake of the Bronze Age collapse, new civilizations, classic classical Greece as we know it, rose out of the ashes. And so there is thought to be these historical precedents for what became Atlantis, but the Atlantis, as we understand it today, this vast empire, it was never really an empire. It was at most a kingdom city-state. Uh, but um, as an empire, it wasn't really born until the 1800s when it became the cultural juggernaut we know it now. I mean, my favourite Disney film is Atlantis Legends of the Lost Empire from like 2001 starring Milo Thaddeus Thatch and Helga Katrina Sinclair. And I've watched this right. so many, so many times. <laughs> and that film is kind of, I think you know, required viewing for people who want to understand the modern interpretation of Atlantis, because they actually pulled from a lot of Atlantis myths to build their story, but they really pulled from the research done in the 1800s, which was all started by a man called Ignatius Donnelly, who in 1882, what a name, right? He's a Minnesota politician, (laughs) Minnesota politician and amateur antiquarian, Ignatius Mm -hmm. Donnelly, he wrote a book called Atlantis, the anti World. And he was the first to ever suggest that Atlantis, that refugees from Atlantis helped shape other ancient cultures following its collapse, ranging from the Egyptian, uh, early Egyptian kingdoms of the pharaohs through to the Maya, which historically doesn't make much sense, considering that the old kingdom of Egypt is thousands and thousands of years older than the Maya. But this was the kind of theory he purported which launched in America and in Europe searches for the lost empire of Atlantis the Royal Geographical Society the National Geographic Society began funding expeditions I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall during those expeditions but they were kind of based off these new theories that didn't really come too much from Plato's theories and about the same time Polygenesis theory was starting to take root and Atlantis became in the eyes of certain people became involved with polygenetic theory as the white eden sort of the the place of origin for the caucasian aryan race and mm-hmm. this is the milieu we've now covered all the theories i think it's relevant to be aware of that then lead us into the second chapter which is Nazi archaeology the stuff of indiana jones legend
0: yes indeed i mean are, are, we, are we ready to jump Are we ready to jump into that, or did you want me to go through a little bit? Do you want to talk a little bit about sort of the general? Let me know when you want to talk about Castle Hosca and some, uh, some other occult things, uh, oh, whatever, yeah. whatever we want to do here. I know the order of events might be a little choppy. We're still figuring out exactly how the SS <laughs> Mistoria is uh, engine room functions here on the show.
1: Well, I've got to say every ship must uh, navigate choppy waters. Even a, mystor- even a historical, <laughs> even a metaphorical ship that exists entirely through an internet connection. Uh, I, I feel
0: like you invent a new word every time we 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 talk.
1: They're all kind of based around the word mystery. And I historical. love it. I, I have yeah. got to
0: be writing these down, man.
1: Yeah, uh, it's all. I'll, I'll write a historical lexography at the end of this. It's going to be a really successful book because <laughs> yeah. every time I misspeak on this show, it becomes an entry in an entirely self-indulgent piece of writing. So to get to Kasselhauska, I think we need to establish what Nazi occultism was. And Nazi occultism sure. was really typified by the Ahnenerbe. <clears throat> Let's try it mm. one more time. It was typified, sure. don't cut any of this. It I'm was not going to. <laughs> by the Ahnenerbe. <laughs> which the full name of this wonderfully German-sounding name is the Forschungs- und Lehrgemeinschaft des Aachenerbe, which was the name of a sort of SS think tank founded by Heinrich Himmler in 1935. Now, Heinrich Himmler is a name we are all too familiar with these days, and you've written a pretty good piece about Heinrich Himmler and his personal fascination, obsession with the occult. So if you want to take us away, let's get into it.
0: Yes, well, Himmler was essentially the poster child of occult Nazi weirdness, as he was particularly influenced by this movement. And when it comes to this guy, not only was he interested in lost civilizations like Atlantis, which we're talking about today, and how that connected to ideas of the goals of the Nazi party, but it got to a point where... He went down so many of his own rabbit holes because he was just flat out fascinated with so much high strangeness associated with the occult and all kinds of weird history. It definitely went beyond just the search for Atlantis, but this guy's this guy was using essentially different skills, tactics, ideas from different branches of the occult, witchcraft, sorcery. In order to obtain his goals, he even tried to contact what he believed to be his Aryan ancestors, quote-unquote, that we're talking about today, through seances. He was trying to reach the ancestors of Atlantis, so it definitely got super weird. He actually even also thought of his SS officers as essentially a form of holy knights, so to speak. He saw himself as the leader of some sort of occult Nazi crusade. Uh, Similar to that of the Templars. Now, he learned about and was influenced by a lot of this stuff because he was a collector of sorts, and by a collector I mean a thief, and he wasn't alone in this. A lot of different Nazis collected books related to matters of the occult, but Himmler actually had an entire branch of the SS that was dedicated to carrying out massive surveys of places where there were records of different occult things that he wanted to get his hands on, records of the witch trials in Europe... Different sort of uh, magical textbooks and things like this. They combed through over 260 libraries, archives throughout Europe to try to find traces of these different pieces of information that he could use and apply to some of the rituals and strange things that he was trying to work on. It is absolutely bizarre. This fascination even tied into some of the strategic things that the Nazis were doing. They occupied a lot of castles, and it wasn't just because they were strategic, they were strongholds, fortifications, but because they also held different books, textbooks, information about weird things, and they were perfect buildings not just for administration, but for conducting these types of seances and weird rituals that Himmler was so fascinated with. I think Himmler he really exemplified the overall real willingness of the of the german people and really just of europeans and people in general at that time to accept accept ideas of the occult and accept things that were a little bit a little bit crazy potentially right and uh, we we made reference i've made references i don't even know if on air but i mean it tied into basically everything they 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 were doing right so the nazi party and the occult it goes back an extremely long way and their origins in like the darkness of you know it was all linked to uh, christianity and like stuff like that as well right um so it was all part of propaganda campaigns
1: Uh, effectively the Aryans like they were trying to they were trying to reinvent germany they weren't trying to restore what germany had been under the kaiser They wanted to invent a new Germany, and they're sort of surrounded by well-established empires and uh, countries that have long histories that justify their uh, raison d'etre, their reason for being. But then the Nazis don't really have that. How do the Nazis justify their existence alongside the empires of Britain, the Republic of France? Um, So how do they justify it? Well, they have to find some, just like how the English kind of have these connections to the Anglo-Saxons and to King Arthur and all these legends that kind of reinforce what it is to be of Albion as an Englishman or as a person of Britannia. The Germans, well, the Nazis, wanted this. They basically, they were delving into science fiction, history, and mythology to create and pick and choose the aspects that would enable them to create the Nazi myth, the SS culture. Um, and I, that's kind of what Himmler's whole deal was. Totally. And I think
0: within that, though, it's like there's that way of phrasing it, which implies it's like almost like almost entirely propaganda, like 99 percent. Mm. Like, let's let's work this into the culture. We're building a culture here. You know what I mean? Yeah. There was there was so much like intimate belief in.
1: Yes, on the, on,
0: from from all different levels as well, which is w- what makes it so bizarre. It's like, it's like, was like Himmler some, was... began to
1: believe his own lies at a certain exactly. point. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly.
0: They they they, were, they became so <laughs> entrenched in it that there was scientific value in their minds mm. in the categories that we would place in the occult, like black magic, witchcraft. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, you know, alternative ideas of history, which is what we're talking about today, and just general esoteric knowledge and mysteries of the natural world were sort of all tied up for them, and then skewed
1: by. Them, you know, exactly. they, their research was skewed, which is exactly what we're talking about. So, well, Castle Hauschka is a perfect example. Uh, which, but I'll, I'll just before we before we get into like the skewing, mm-hmm. I'm just going to quickly try and explain the Annerber as a general concept because uh, to sort of Him- Himmler Himmler was in charge of the Gestapo and the SS. Mm-hmm. The SS being the Schutzstaffel. Mm-hmm. They were the real bad guys of the Second World War because I mean. In the Second World War, Allied soldiers feared fighting SS battalions more than any Wehrmacht battalion, because a Wehrmacht battalion is made out of regular German infantry and a lot of conscripts by the end of the war. The SS yeah. were not just soldiers, but they were Nazis. So the Ahnenerbe was the idea of creating an archaeological, zoological, ethnographical think tank peopled exclusively by Nazis. So again, it was the idea of how the Waffen-SS was sort of the SS, the Nazi soldiers, the yes. yeah. Ahnenerbe was the idea of making, basically, making Nazi archaeologists. So basically, they are party men first, and then they are scientists second. And this was Himmler's kind of technique at enabling himself to create the mythology he already believed in. And this is this underpinning of all Ahnenerbe approaches to science is that they already had the belief. And then they went looking for evidence to prove it. Scientific practice is finding something and then interpreting it. The Nazis already knew what they wanted to find, and then they went off to find it. So they kind of did science in the reverse. Exactly. And then he took it a step
0: further, right? They took it a step further, exactly. where once they would find some of these things that they already had set in their minds that they needed to find to establish these ideas they are working with, he would then turn that into a, a, a cult, a religion, a religion-like yes. cult. He was trying to create his own... Him, Himmler eventually, and once he was so entrenched in this, was legitimately trying to create his own established religion where yes. they were practicing... Weird rituals they were doing. We they were drinking the Kool Aid, so to speak. Oh, if you're yeah. like, I'm picturing it in my head, they had the hoods up, robes, weird music, all like, right? Like it's like it was a full led, experience.
1: Hitler led a solstice ritual at a Stonehenge he referred to as Hitler's Stonehenge, which he had built in Germany, especially for the Nazis. He wanted to create, yeah. He wanted to create this feudal Aryan agrarian state that revitalized Nordic religions. He was erecting stone hinges, stone circles. And yes, he sort of picked out, uh, picked out SS men and taught them how to like play ancient musical instruments and taught them how to farm in traditional techniques and even tried to bring back uh, prehistoric animal species like the aurochs to sort of replicate this ancient religious place he imagined the aryans existed mm-hmm. within because he believed mm-hmm. it the first archaeology he did before castle hauschka became sort of the 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 seminal d- definition of Nazi archaeology the first archaeology he did was almost too scientific he was investigating things called ding places which is a great name, but effectively it was place He thought there were gathering places in Europe for ancient Aryans, and what he was effectively doing was excavating Iron Age archaeology of Iron Age Germanic tribes from Germany. And he was running back to Hitler with like potsherds and flint axes, and kind of telling him like, "Look at all this amazing Aryan stuff I'm finding." And Hitler was super unimpressed. And there's a great quote from Albert Speer, who was a Nazi architect, who said. Himmler is starting to dig up these villages of mud huts and enthusing over every potsherd and stone axe he finds. All we prove by this is that we were still throwing stone hatches and crouching around open fires when Greece and Rome had already researched the highest stage of culture. So Himmler's first attempt at creating an Aryan mythology was unsuccessful because he was almost being too scientific. He was just doing Germanic um, archaeology. It was almost a setback, like
0: what what he found there. That was almost not just like, oh, this isn't working. It's like that quote right there is like, that's a big setback. That's one step forward, 10 steps back for him. Literally, it
1: proved the antithesis of what they were seeking to find, which is when they formally adopted cosmic ice theory as the underpinning of Nazi science and kind of being like, if we believe cosmic ice theory, we believe Aryans were once the only race on Earth 2 million years ago. And by believing that, we can then argue that Nazi archaeology can be found on a global level. This not only justifies our conquest of the planet, it also justifies our anti-Semitic and generally racist approaches to non aryan people. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that was then, that was this cognitive shift with a Nazi thought where they're like, okay, now we know what we're looking for. It's not fact, but it's like, batshit nuts stuff. And now let's get into Castle Hauschke. That's your wheelhouse. So we're now going to part three, the expeditions. How better to open it than with Castle
0: <laughs> Yeah, I I would agree because, you know, it was the, you know, one of the perfect symbolic meeting places and it really couldn't have been a better a better, you know, temple, if you will, for Himmler and, and the SS and what they were trying to do when, in terms of Nazi archaeology and the occult because he really thought of what his he was doing as almost forming like a Teutonic order. Like he was the, almost, they were heavily influenced by like the Knights Templar and that's what he thought he was. He thought the SS was basically like this, they were on this quest, right? And yeah, what better a place to set... Quest. Yeah, and they looked for the Holy Grail as well. I would. I, I think we would argue that the ultimate quest is their search for Atlantis, and the, mm-hmm. the Holy Grail and other artifacts were sort of like, you know, side side notes to that. But Castle Hoska is this utterly bizarre. For those of you who don't know, uh, we had we did an episode on it on the other show we have on Straight Up Strange Network into the portal, so you guys can go check that out. But for all, for all intents and purposes, essentially, what this is is well, this it's really interesting accent
1: you just did. I loved it. <laughs> For all intents <laughs> awesome. and purposes. Thank you. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yeah, Robert, that's... Uh, sorry, Andrew, as you were saying. Oh, yes, right, indeed. Well,
0: um, it's, it's sitting on just utterly bizarre grounds, and what it is is an inside-out castle as it stands today. And what I mean by inside-out is that it's designed that its fortifications are focused inward, and the uh, windows on the exterior... Uh, facing outward are actually mostly facades fake windows they are uh, just there for show so it's basically designed uh, and the stories and legends go that it's a uh, formed around a, a pit to hell uh, a gateway to the underworld or a gateway to another dimension where monsters and uh, strange creatures were let to escape and wreak havoc on the local village people back in uh, back at the you know in the early first millennium A.D. But the site is uh, a site of ancient pagan ritual. There was a wood structure constructed there uh, long before the castle that stands today. People believed genuinely that it was uh, one of the many gateways around the world to to another place to the underworld. Bizarre artifacts found inside uh, animals that had been. Vivisected to make to, to wear different antlers than they should have, and just utterly bizarre things. It and let
1: me just ask: these 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 animal discoveries were they pre-Nazi yes. or are they a product of the Nazi occupation of Kadaleska?
0: Pre, pre so this is all pre-Nazi. This oh, is all wow. the reason they were attracted to this place, uh, and it did end up becoming a, a central administration hub for the SS while they were in Bohemia in the in the area. And they after the did, occupation um, of Czechoslovakia. It, exactly and while they were and while that was happening throughout that whole occupation they were of course like everywhere else trying to get their hands on any books that would either benefit them or to get rid of right that mm. were going to be competing against their ideology so they they used H- hoshka as their central hub of this it was the library of the occult That's um, so some cool. some some people argue that there weren't actually as many witchcraft and occult based books in in Czechoslovakia at the time uh, that that was sort of like blown up overplayed that that Himmler was really digging deep because it is a, it's a land rich with so much mystery uh yeah. you know I've, I've been to Prague but I was only there on a kind of half-assed vacation you've been there I know how much you love the the, the city and the, the area around there mm-hmm. I think Hoshka only about 40 minutes outside of Prague something about that something yeah, like that
1: I mean, Prague is the home of the golem as well, which, of course, is an an ideology and mythology that the Nazis would have had nothing to do with, as it is a a Hebrew, historically, uh, um, uh, creature. But I remember learning about the golem of Prague and the witchcraft and the vampires of Prague. I mean, Prague, for such a small capital, is Mm -hmm. overflowing with the eerie, amazing, awe-inspiring and terrifying... Mythology that surrounds it, and it is kind of representative of the region at large of Czechia, Slovakia, or historically Czechoslovakia, and Bohemia, as it once was referred to as well. Yes. Um, So I can, I I, I know very little about Castle Hauschka, but absolutely, if there was a country to build your defensive castle protecting the gateway to the Hollow Earth, Mm. it would be in a country already teeming with Mm. mythology of that nature. And also, Mm. it is. It is a very good ding place for the Nazis to investigate, I feel, as well. It is right up the alley of the new Ahneba once they reinvented their policy. Exactly.
0: So so that's basically, you know, there's so much more I could get into about the castle itself and the details. That's sort of something for another day. But th- that's the point is basically, yeah, it was It was a site of of, of immense, strange, esoteric, energy, knowledge. Uh, yeah. it was a it was a place where they had that feeling like they really were conducting rituals that would line up with the Knights Templar or some sort of an ancient occult order of some sort, right? So it was just the perfect place for them to do that. And there was stories about a uh, Himmler sort of reconducting rituals that were supposed to mimic those done by oh I'm forgetting the name. Not Slavador, that was one of the earlier... Uh, the guy who constructed the castle. But there was a, a guy who practiced black magic that was famous for supposedly stealing towns or kidnapping townspeople to perform oh rituals and experiments in the castle. And that was one of the legends of the SS being there, that they were sort of latching onto that black magic and, and trying Hitler to recreate was impersonating this.
1: black magic... So a guy that was kidnapping townsfolk and experimenting on them, Himmler thought, now that sounds like the kind of guy I would like to emulate.
0: <laughs> yeah, oh, sounds like God. a guy I'd like to have a cup of coffee with or get stuck in an elevator with or kind of like hang out with on a Sunday afternoon, I guess.
1: Yeah, it's like I... what are the rabbis who make these amazing uh, clay golems <laughs> to protect the townsfolk? No, that stuff sounds boring. <laughs> I want to cut people open over a gateway to hell. That's my kind of magic. Oh my god. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. Actually, so that ties really well into one of the earlier expeditions I've listed here. And I'm thinking mm. we could actually wrap up part one with this discussion of the first expedition and how it relates I to Castle good. And then part two is gonna be a big dive into the international expeditions that went beyond Europe. So real quick guys, stay tuned for part two. But let's I'm not we're not finishing part one just yet, but I'm now going to, really quick, because what you're saying has got me thinking about the 1936 expedition to Finland, led by an an, uh, individual known as Jurso von Gronhagen, who was a a Finnish man and a member of the uh, Ahnenerbe. And so this was an expedition into Karelia in Finland, and they went, This this was a Nazi expedition, one of the first out of Europe expeditions before the war out of sorry out of Germany expeditions that the Nazis undertook and they went to Finland to interview pagan sorcerers and witches um, mm-hmm. to, to to learn about the truth in the tales of certain foundational Finnish myths now Finland isn't so far from Europe, but it definitely has its own indigenous culture, which remains very different from the Judeo-Christian culture that permeates most of modern Europe, and most of Europe as it was understood in the 1930s and 40s as well. The indigenous people uh, of, of Scandinavian countries would be considered witches and sorcerers. They are certainly, or at least certainly were in the 40s, still pagan groups, Uh, Following their own cultural traditional ways. Mm -hmm. And in the same area originated this uh, Finnish saga known as the Kalevala. And the legend of the uh, the story of the Kalevala, it also appears in Nordic myths. And of course, Nordic myths appear in the Wagnerian Ring cycle. And Hitler was a big fan of Wagner, Wagner being a, a composer of operas. And Wagner became quintessential with the Nazi Party, unfortunate, considering Wagner had died long before the Nazis rose to power and had very Mm. little to do with it. But you can't listen to Rite of the Valkyries now without being struck by the uh, overarching Nazi tones of it. Uh, But not only was Wagner inspired by Nordic myths, inspired by the Kalevala, but also Lord of the Rings was inspired in many ways by the Kalevala as well, uh, through the Kalevalas. So... The Kalevala's influence on Nordic myths had its own influence on Anglo-Saxon mythology, too. And Tolkien was an Anglo-Saxon scholar. So the Kalevala is one of these origin myths for a lot of fantasy stories. But the Nazis, as per glacial cosmology, believed, well, maybe the Kalevala itself is reflective of the truth of the area. So they sent an expedition led by Jürze von Gronhagen, whose own colleagues in the Annenebe, believed him to be completely incompetent incidentally <laughs> he led his own expedition up there and they collected local local pagan spells chants and incantations because Himmler really wanted to bring more authentic rites to bolster his new aryan his new ancient aryan culture religion that we that we have established he was establishing christian practices were already being phased out in germany for example christening had now been replaced by what was known as an SS naming ceremony. And Himmler, according to Cambridge scholar Sir Richard Evans, Himmler wanted to press forwards with a new religion, which included sun worship and old gods. He wanted the cult of the SS to become some kind of Aryan aristocracy. And the Kalevala investigation and the expedition to Karelia was, as you've mentioned with Castle Hauschka, this collection of all the local myths, but not just myths, a collection of their spells and incantations, which then Himmler was repeating in his own pseudo-religious ceremonies, at his solstice rituals at Hitler's Stonehenge, and by the sounds of things, they probably came up again in the 1940s at Castle Hauschka, Mm -hmm. so maybe you can tell me a little bit more about Castle Hauschka, and then we'll round out episode one at that point, and then we'll come into it strong with the next episode next week. Is there anything in particular that is like sort of uh, like at the
0: peak in your brain here as far as questions about Hauska?
1: So I, I would be really interested to know about some of the examples of Nazi practice that took place within Castle Hauska, whether it is anecdotal or historically evidenced. And I'd be curious to know what kind of place in the cultural landscape Castle Hauska occupies today. Is it still considered a place of supernatural evil?
0: Ooh, yes. I mean definitely yes to the to the latter part of your question there. Mm. The thing the, the 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 tough thing with some of the legends I would and that's what I'm gonna call it when it comes to definitely Hoshka and I think definitely with a lot of the uh the ritualistic practices that people think may or may not have taken place with Himmler and some of the stuff they did. Mm. There's no it's all anecdotal. There's no yeah you know um i mean god i would have been interested to be a fly on the wall in, inside inside Hoshka, uh, oh for, for, right but you know there was definitely some interesting rooms and spaces that i think they would have been particularly interested in there was a chamber in the basement that's now been converted into uh, sort of a, a, a tourist attraction fake torture chamber room and it never really was that hmm. but it also doesn't really have any specific use and they did find some interesting sort of like strange animal remains and just like artifacts in there back, back in the day. So I feel like there would have been, oh, I mean, I, I, I'm almost thinking like Himmler's version of, uh, of, of hazing a new, uh, recruited a college type thing, right? Oh, yeah. like you got to go sit down in the pit or something like that. But, you know, I think, I think the whole point of them being there wasn't just because it was a great central hub. Wasn't just because it had, you know, already some occult, you know just history tied to it i genuinely think he was trying to harness the powers of evil if you will mm. i think he was genuinely trying to be in the, just like people try to go to ley line locations to harness energy for certain things i think he mm. was wanted to be over where there was potentially a gateway to another world so they well, could
1: if we maybe think about transfer, I, I don't know well if we think about all the influences that had built up to Himmler's interpretation of history and all the mm. the uh, historical um, theories that we covered at the start of this episode, Him, Himmler would have believed that there is a hollow earth peopled by the Thule, and as we'll get into next week, he definitely believed that modern Tibetans, as the descendants of Aryans, were able, through trance and occult practice, to contact the Thule, who's still, the, the Aryan Thule, who still lived below the earth. I mean... Hollow Earths, gateways, and Aryans surviving secret below the Earth was a very big part of not only the pursuit for Atlantis, but also Himmler's religion as a basis. So being built over a gateway dimension makes a lot of sense if you are starting to experiment with the means to contact another race. But you can't contact them through telegraph, phone call, or a visit. You can contact them only through uh, magic ritual and spiritual practice and I think that sets up as well for next week because next week we're going to be getting into the expedition to Tibet which really was sort of the pinnacle of Nazi expeditions which kind of builds off everything Hauschka stood for but it was just done very far away from Europe and builds up to the grand climax which is the expedition to Tiwanaku in the Bolivian Andes and the excavation of what is potentially one of the world's only remaining Atlantean cities. It's not, but that was, <laughs> real quick, uh, spoilers, it's not. It's not an, an Aryan, Andean, Atlantean artifact. It was built by local people, but that we will cover in more depth next week. So I think we'll wrap it up and get straight back into episode two. But to our wonderful listeners, thank you so much for listening to episode one of this thrilling two-parter Next yes. week, we're going to be traveling all over the world. We've, we've done the homework now, and everyone that's listening is now familiar with all the crazy theories that were influencing crazy Nazis. And now we're going to see how they managed to wreak havoc on the world. We've already got a little bit of an introduction with Castle Hauschka. Of course, Castle mm-hmm. was occupied during the Nazi occupation of Czechoslovakia, so we're already getting into the Second World War. But in Episode 2, we're going to take it back a couple of years to the dying yes. days yeah. of the 1930s when war was on the horizon, everyone knew it was coming, and the Nazis were scrambling to establish themselves as a superior Aryan race through a complete misunderstanding of science and history. So, thank you guys so much for listening to Episode 1. I have been... Nicholas
0: Cox and I am Andrew McKay you can also find us uh, on uh, well at, on Facebook on, under our network it's at Straight Up uh, Straight Up Strange Productions on Facebook so you can come hit us up there we do not have our own Facebook page up yet for the Mistorians that's that's in the works that's coming oh, yeah. and uh, we may or may not have not have some other things up as well maybe we'll have a TikTok account if you guys want us to make one who knows you can yeah. let us know on uh, on Instagram if you want us to make something like that
1: yeah and we have an OnlyFans currently going where you can watch us uh, actually record these episodes as we do them completely in the nude. Uh, you can't tell that through <laughs> the audio, but Andrew and I are very naked right now. We've got a ring light oh, set up. That's, that's I am right. sitting very seductively on a couch. Uh, but also lounge, man. lounge. <laughs> if you really want to follow me, because I actually do not yet have an OnlyFans yet. But if you do want to follow mm. me, I am Nick Swift Diggs on Instagram. Uh, but my name is spelled the German way, so that is N-I-K-S-W-I-F-T. D I G S, N I K S W I F T, D I G S. You can also. Support the podcast, or more explicitly, you can support me personally by buying the podcast-related art and my own personal art over on TeePublic. So if you go through to TeePublic, I'm a creator there. I am Nick Swift Draws. N I K S W I F T D R A W S. If you find me on Instagram, all the relevant links are available through my link tree. It would mean the world to me if you could buy yourselves a Historian's hoodie. Or oh, yeah. one of the other items of clothing uh it's not just clothing it's also masks uh america everyone's vaccinated at this point i don't know how it is in canada but in germany no one's vaccinated there. so you can still buy masks and it is still cool to wear them <laughs> if you're in europe <laughs> where the rollout of the vaccine this is dating the episode yes we recorded it during the pandemic
0: uh, yes, the rollout yes.
1: has been piss poor so you can support me uh through Tee Public until we eventually launch a website of our own to sell our merchandise directly totally stay
0: tuned for some more designs too because i know nick has done some amazing stuff so yeah make sure you guys go check that out the ss mystoria is going to be making an appearance uh, an appearance i think uh oh, I the, think so. our lovely
1: vessel that we uh, still don't know what this vessel looks like is it an airship a submarine a boat Un- i think clear. it's everything i think it's a little bit of everything. i think it's all And if you guys are talented artists out there and you want to do fan art of the SS Mystoria, do that. If you want to do fan art of me and Andrew, as I said, we have an OnlyFans, do that as well. (laughs) Um,
0: And that brings us to the end of this archival release. I am so stoked that I found this audio file, you guys. Nick, Nick and I recorded that a couple of years ago during the pandemic when we were actually trying to get the Mystorians off the ground. I'm sure a lot of you will remember when we were posting about that a few years ago, and uh, it didn't end up really making a go, you know? We we couldn't really find the time in the end, Nick ended up being so busy with all he does, traveling around the world, doing all the crazy archaeological digs that he's working on, and uh, now working on his PhD, so he's been such a busy guy. We definitely miss him, and we, we definitely keep in touch all the time, and I've talked to him just actually today, and... I think we are definitely going to try to record not only the part two to go along with this intro to Nazi archaeology and some of their bizarre, bizarre ideas with the search for Atlantis heading into the Bolivian jungle, but also some other potential projects as well, including, potentially, going through some of the episodes from... Oh my gosh, now the series is escaping me. That new one on Netflix with Graham Hancock, where he is essentially going through a lot of these controversial archaeological ideas as well. And I can't wait to talk to Nick about Ancient Apocalypse. Just came back to me, Ancient Apocalypse. So yeah, I think we're going to try to talk to Nick about that. That is going to be an absolute blast. We also have other episodes in the works, you guys. So excited to be coming back on the mics with Amber We are working on two different episodes at the moment. One is almost ready to go on an absolutely bizarre disappearance that took place in and around the Great Lakes. So yes, indeed, we are heading back towards the Great Lakes Triangle kind of territory. And there's going to be some strange associations with other paranormal high strangers there as well. And then, of course, if you follow us on social media, you will have already seen me teeing up the episode on the Dark Pyramid and other... Unidentified ancient structures that may or may not exist, uh, blocked by the government, covered up for different reasons. What they might actually be used for, or still be in research because people might not actually have any idea the capabilities of these places. It is cool. I can't wait to talk about that. So thank you guys so much for tuning into this archive release. I really hope you enjoyed it, and. Uh, just thank you guys so much for, for listening in general. If you really enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever you catch into the portal. And just a massive, massive thank you to all of our Patreon supporters out there and a huge thank you to our producers. We have Adam Callums, we have Kit Sune, and we have Jarrett Cornelius, who's the newest addition. We couldn't do this without you guys. Thank you so, so much. If you want to support the show, you can become a patron at patreon.com/slash into the portal. There's all kinds of cool perks and stuff on there and a bunch of content that of course is already up and more more episodes coming uh, to that feed soon as well. Make sure to check us out on Instagram at into the Portal Podcast and IntoThePortal One on Twitter. Not as active on Facebook these days, but come hit us up there too, into the portal podcast on Facebook. And we always love hearing from you guys. So if you have any thoughts or ideas about the show, you want to hear a certain episode, shoot us an email, into the portal mailbox at gmail.com had a blast today you guys can't wait to be back on the mic with both nick and amber and we'll see you guys again real soon until next time on into the portal